Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Maxime Bernier billboards, up or down, the fallout from the G7 summit, or was there this time? And what to do with Airbnb, rules and regulations. Is it possible? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, after outcry, uh, the Bernier billboards are coming down. A third party purchased the billboards. It drew criticism over the message against mass immigrations, uh, immigration rather. Uh, the signs say, and I guess there was one uh, down on uh, Aberdeen near where we are. Uh, the uh, the uh, billboard's picture of Maxime Bernier and the message, say no to mass immigration. And then it has the People's Party logo underneath that. To talk about all of this, Michael Tobe is with us. Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, I guess it's up to the people who own these billboards to decide whether they come down or not, but what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, no, no, it's it's a thousand percent up to them. Um, there is absolutely nothing you, I, or any of your listeners can do if we don't happen to like what's published on the billboard. And the very simple fact is it's private property. There are people or organizations that own these billboards. So if you go through it and you've created whatever the message is, and that message is approved by the private owner of the billboards, well, they go up. That's what happened here. This billboard that went up, which had Maxime Bernier's picture or a photo, the People's Party of Canada was listed on it with the line, just say no to mass immigration, was actually not from the People's Party of Canada. It was done by an organization, I believe they were called, nothing in front of a True North Strong and Free Advertising Corp., I believe, and that was the organization that created it, bought for it, and paid it and paid for it. So there was nothing much that could be done there. The real key is, and I'm sure this is what we'll get into, was how the response or how the response evolved from Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada from at first starting off at no no no, this had nothing to do with us to now that they've been taken down, all of a sudden they may not necessarily be coming out and cheering for it, but it doesn't look like they're opposing the message either. Uh, talk about the third party, and does it matter that they were issued by a third party? I mean, it's his image that's on him, uh, on them. It's the, it's the party logo that's on them. Does it matter if it's purchased by a third party or not? Well, you know, the rules are very, very lax against that, and I know this may come as a surprise to some people, but... That's kind of the way it works. Um, For example, just to use one that I can think of, there were billboards that were done years ago of the late Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, which were done without his approval. They were just put up. Again, there was nothing anywhere near as controversial as what we're talking about right now, but they were put up without his money or, you assume, his blessing or his team's blessing. So even though you're right, I mean, when it includes a logo or the the leader's image or something like that, certainly they could try to fight it. Certainly they could have a discussion directly with the owner of the billboard. Certainly they could take them to court if they wanted to, to try and take them down. But the initial transaction, even in this country, believe it or not, is that if it's approved, well, for as of right now, to this day, it's approved and it goes up. Uh, so are you, are you saying or suggesting that Bernier didn't approve this? I mean, again, it is a third party, but he would know about this, would he not? No, not necessarily. I don't know if, I, for example, using the, the example of the late Rob Ford and his team, I don't know if they were necessarily aware of it. <clears throat> Pardon me. Well, let's put it this way. If, the if, if he wasn't, wouldn't he have not spoken out about it? Well, that's the key. I don't think they knew it was going up, and they came out immediately and said, like even uh, Bernier himself didn't even speak about it initially, uh, Scott. They went through the media spokesperson who said that it had nothing to do with the People's Party of Canada. They, they just basically said, this is not us, it has nothing to do with us, it's not our money, we didn't make the arrangement, etc. But the key here was that initially neither Bernier nor the media spokesperson made a comment about whether or not the leader and the party agreed with the message on the third-party advertising. Right. And that's where the real key to this comes in. The fact that it went up, 
that's a completely separate matter. And if it's true that the People's Party of Canada had nothing to do with it, that's fine. We can accept that. The problem here is that it took them forever to come out with a response, and initially they completely avoided it. So, uh, can, uh, what, what are your thoughts on his response? Can you, I mean, unless you're denouncing this, you're agreeing with it, are you not? Well, yeah, you see, in, well, initially they didn't want to have a response at all, so they just left it up in the air, even up a, as late as Sunday. In other like, words, I we'll think, just see how it plays out. Yes, I think that's what they were doing. Now, it's not necessarily the strategy that you or I would choose, but that's what they opted to do. But then everything started to turn. You know, we don't have to go through it point by point, but then there was a little position yesterday on Sunday where all of a sudden Maxime Bernier's Twitter account threw up a poll, a Twitter poll, saying, well, do you agree with the fact that there should be mass immigration, or are you opposed to mass immigration? And people started voting on that. So they initially went from, let's see what people say, engage popular opinion, to, okay, let's strike our own route towards popular opinion and build it from there. And now the real key is, as you know, all the billboards, it was announced by Patterson, who profusely apologized, there may have genuinely been some sort of miscommunication between them and the third-party advertiser. Based on the note of the owner, either he was supremely embarrassed by what happened or there was something that went wrong. Either way, he agreed that the signs should come down, and they came down today. Now, all of a sudden, if you look at Maxime Bernier, and you just base it on social media or his Twitter account, if you'd like... I'm not saying he's necessarily coming out and praising it, but he's not condemning it either. If anything, he actually basically believes that that message should have stood up there, and he, didn't, and he doesn't seem to be wildly opposed to the idea either, which is kind of significant in itself. So uh, at the end of the day, should they have been taken down? Initially, the same company says we take a neutral position on these ads that comply with the ASC code, as we yep. believe Canadians uh, don't want us to be the judge or arbitrator of what the public can or cannot see. Um, so uh, until when? Does that, does that apply until there's too many complaints? Well, I mean, I think it depends up to, it's the private individual who yeah. makes that decision. I mean, I, it's not a call you or I could make, it's whatever your level of tolerance is. If you believe that the message is acceptable, well, obviously you'll keep it up. If you don't want to get involved in the issue, you may just simply choose to leave it up because you're making a profit from whatever the contract was between the third-party advertising company and yourself. So they obviously want to get some benefit from it. If you want controversy, well, then you also keep it up because... Right. You know, that, that may aid you in other ways. It may aid your business or not. It could also work as a negative. The controversy can work against you very badly, and people may just simply choose to boycott your product altogether. And, look, I think that basically you would have to go to Patterson Outdoor to, to actually get yeah. their response as to why they chose to do it. But I think that the understanding was, or at least the media report is, uh, that the public outcry mm-hmm. affected them greatly. And I think they realized that they were going to lose more than they hoped to ultimately obtain. Or, as they've suggested, there was just something went wrong in the communication between A to B, and either they didn't fully understand what was being put up, or once they saw it and the public reaction became so wholly negative... They probably had privately, uh, through so you know sober second thought, they probably thought about this and realized that there is no benefit to them and that their business could be badly hurt. Whatever the case may be, the end result is that uh, you would certainly hope that in the future, Patterson and other people or organizations that own billboards look more closely at these things and think more closely about it, because the risk you can take is that, well, the whole country is going to be talking about it at the same time. Uh, their official statement, never their intention to offend, alienate, or in any way insult the public by allowing this ad to run, uh, this after uh, uh, changing their <laughs> But how could statement. they not? It's, it says no yeah. to mass immigration, so yeah, yeah. that breaks everything that they said in their apology. But again, it's the way that they cover their butts. Uh, that being said, did this help or hurt Maxime Bernier? I guess we're talking about it. Well, for him, it helps him, because obviously Bernier is middling along i mean i know some people will argue it a little bit generally speaking most opinion polls put him and his party around two to three percent federally give or take so 
any sort of publicity is good. And, you know, it's the old argument, as long as they spell my name right, any publicity works to my advantage. I'm mm. just paraphrasing a little bit. So for Bernier, he sees this as a story that has rolled along for a few days. So it's kept his name in the news, and it's kept his, his fledgling uh, political party in the news as well, and that's what he's ultimately looking for. Is it beneficial? Well, he is trying to make a real argument to get onto the debate podium, as I've written about in others, and most of us believe he should be there because, you know, it, it opens your eyes and ears to all sorts of different opinions. Plus, his party seems to be strong enough ultimately in the grand scheme of things that it should be put up, and I don't have to relive ancient history with you. We've talked about this. But I think that, unfortunately, with something like this and then basically coming out and not being either wholly positive or wholly negative about a message that I think would not resonate with most Canadians whatsoever, depending on how you define mass immigration. I mean, he's looking at it as a way of getting publicity for himself. It could also work very much against him. And for a few people who are sitting on the fence and they sort of see this tie-in and the way that it kind of evolved from the party just trying to cover their eyes and not be a part of it to suddenly almost not strongly, but somewhat supporting it, it's going to make a lot of people on the fence wonder. <laughs> uh, your thoughts on uh, the 2005 tape of Andrew Scheer that uh, surfaced last week? Has this run its course? Um, you know, obviously other liberals uh, thinking the same way way back when. Have we gone past this? Is, is it, can you look at yesterday through today's lens? I don't think so. I mean, it's an interesting segue, but no, this is a 14-year-old video, Scott. Um, it's long since run its course. I mean, if everyone was held up to account for what they said and did 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, quite frankly, none of, almost none of us would have any public positions whatsoever because we would probably obviously remember things we said in private or, you know, in our, you know, in a frat party or God knows what else. And you're probably sitting there twiddling your thumbs thinking, oh, great, that'll ruin my career. But it was 14 years ago, and I think that everyone has evolved over that time. And whatever Andrew Scheer's personal views are of gay marriage, he actually supports the same position that the Conservative Party currently stands for, which is that we accept the, the letter of the law, and we have for years. You know, obviously it was not our, it was not a Tory government that put into place. It was Prime Minister Jean Chrétien at the time who motored it in in a way that I would not necessarily call democratic in nature. But over the years, people are now just used to it. And Andrew Scheer has also evolved, quite frankly, as a person who has defended uh, gay people and the gay community who, when they are being attacked viciously in other countries, mostly non-democratic countries, but of that sort that he basically has come out and defended their individual rights and liberties. So, again, obviously the gay community in Canada may look at the issue a bit differently one way or the other. There are obviously people who are left-wing and are gay. They are obviously opposed to anything Andrew Scheer stands and does. But you can also see on social media and elsewhere that there are gay Tories who have come out and defended Andrew Scheer, not for partisan reasons specifically, but for part-partisan and also specifically because they have seen and met this man and understand the way he thinks and acts towards their own community. And they, you know, they may not be 100% supportive of everything he stands for on that issue or that the party stands for on that issue, but by and large, they are basically in favor of them and their rights as Canadians. For that reason, I mean, I think that everyone has greatly evolved. And I think it's just silly uh, for the liberals, and I think it's a terrible political tactic, Scott. Are you surprised by this sort of stuff this, this early in the campaign? No. No, because for this seems like a last this seems like a last week uh, last week of the campaign Hail Mary to me. It is, it used to be. I th I don't think it's that way anymore. I mean, uh, Canadian politics has changed a lot, and a lot of people, as you know, have suggested it's going to be the dirtiest campaign probably of our lifetimes. We're always about fifteen to twenty years behind the U.S. in terms of political tactics and various other things. And this is not an attack on the U.S., which is you know I like very much as a country. But we usually grab both the positive and negative virtues that come out from their politics, and they usually sort of siphon their way or sink their way directly into our system. So what used to be a Hail Mary years ago, and I agree with you, that was it, 
is now something that I think tactically we have to come to expect or realize is going to be a part of the Canadian political system now. So the fact that the Liberals went after sheer hard and fast, unsurprising. The Tories will do the same, and the other parties will follow. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you so much. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's move on. Uh, Justin Trudeau met with several leaders during the G7 summit. What came out of the meetings uh, and uh, in regard to Amazon, uh, the Amazon and the fires burning there, uh, which, of course, was probably uh, certainly the big news story and top of mind for everyone that was there this weekend. Let's bring in Helene Amorian, director, uh, G7 Research Group, France Office, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Helene, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, thank you for having me. So what was the atmosphere of this uh, G7? We remember the last one in Quebec. It seemed uh, to end uh, kind of hastily and in no communique and such. What about the mood of this one? Well, uh, all the leaders just had their final press conferences today. And I can say that compared to last year's G7, which, as you said, ended uh, in acrimony, uh, Donald Trump withdrew from the final communique via Twitter, um, the kind of common theme here today is unity. So uh, French President Emmanuel Macron and uh, Donald Trump actually held a press conference together where they really went to great lengths to uh, show unity, show international cooperation. Uh, Justin Trudeau, in a press conference, also emphasized that the G7 made some real progress on issues like the Amazon, like uh, the global economy, uh, like gender equality. So I would say that unity is the overarching theme of uh, today's G7 summit here in Beirut. How interesting or ironic, perhaps, is that, considering that's pretty much the whole idea behind all of these it seems it seems it seems it seems as if it's been a, a a time of reflection for the g7 to sort of re-examine itself and what it's really there to do i mean i would say the big change was when donald trump was elected and ever since then every g7 summit that he's attended the question has always been is it going to be a g6 plus one um, before this summit even started, there were reports out in the press that Donald Trump didn't even want to attend, that he didn't even see the point of uh, these summits. So um, we were kind of proved wrong today um, because we really did see that the G7 did make some real progress. And it's kind of like a, a saving grace for the G7 when it's been called into question, its legitimacy, its efficiency, the whole point of the G7 has really been called into question. And I think that's really motivated the leaders here in Biarritz to show that the G7 still is legitimate and that it still is an important tool of global governance and of international cooperation. You talked about how things had changed since Donald Trump came into the picture. Uh, many times he, you know, you, we've seen how he kind of sucks the oxygen out of the room. Why the change of tone for Donald Trump this time out, do you think? That's a good question, and I think a lot of it can be attributed to Emmanuel Macron's leadership. You know, after what happened in Charlevoix last year in Canada, Emmanuel Macron knew that Donald Trump was kind of the uh, sort of unpredictable element and that he had to be managed well. And um, right from the outset, Emmanuel Macron said there will be no final joint communique. There will be some documents outlining some of the actions we're taking together, but no final joint communique. And I think that really helped because instead of focusing attention on, you know, is it going to be a G6 plus one? Um, where is Donald Trump not going to agree to sign on to different initiatives? Um, the leaders were really able to just talk in an informal manner and uh, bridge the gap between the U.S. and the other G7 members. It's not to say that there still aren't, you know, important differences between the U.S. and the other G7 members. I mean, you only have to think about the fact that the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement. But here in Europe, there really is a sense that the G7 is uniting again um, and is showing a united front to the world. Why do you think that Macron decided no communique? Uh, is that to defuse an issue before it even starts? Or is it more, uh, too many people were focused on a communique and, and, and what the result was as opposed to what the, uh, what the process was? 
While Emmanuel Macron said is, even when a communique is published, very few people actually read it. And if they do, it's just to see where the divergences were, where the disagreements were. So by not having a final communique, um, Emmanuel Macron kind of diffused the, the situation. Um, the press wasn't focused on whether or not there would be a communique, whether or not Donald Trump would sign on. Instead, leaders were really able to, to talk and, and to uh, come up with uh, joint efforts without that pressure of those late-night sessions in order to ensure that there would be a final joint communique. What would have replaced that? Because at the end of the day, people still want to know, well, what was solved here? What was resolved? What, what, what did you talk about? What, what were your common denominators? So in the end, what would have been in it, I guess? Well, so instead of a final communique, we have a one-page summary from President Emmanuel Macron um, just outlining what the G7 members agreed on. So outlining the fact that there needs to be a reform when it comes to international trading rules, that all members agree on the fact that Iran should not have nuclear weapons. We also have separate documents um, that do outline the G7's commitments. For example, we have a document on development in the Sahel region. We have a document outlining the G7's efforts in the Amazon. So while we don't have a final communique, we do have these annex documents that do outline the G7's commitments. In a certain sense, they're kind of the same thing as a communique, but without having that label, um, Emmanuel Macron was able to diffuse sort of the attention that almost monopolizes people when it comes to the G7 to see whether or not there will be that final communique. Uh, lots of chatter today in regard to Donald Trump not attending a climate change discussion. Uh, what transpired out of that? Yes, lots of attention uh, on that. Emmanuel Macron said that his team was there. Um, even if his team was there, he was the only leader who wasn't there. That obviously speaks to um, what Trump considers as his priorities. Climate change clearly is not one of his priorities. I mean, we've known of that for a long time. He withdrew from the, the Paris Agreement. He's been very reluctant to talk about climate change and the environment here. Um, some of Donald Trump's aides actually even leaked to the press that uh, they're upset with Macron for putting such an emphasis on climate change instead of talking about issues like the global economy. So, you know, Trump really made clear that climate change is not a priority for him here at the G7. Why would he just not go up and say that in person then? Like, where's Donald Trump when everybody else is hanging out there? Um, that's a good question. And, and honestly, we don't know the answer. Um, Donald Trump is someone who thrives on being unpredictable. When it comes to Trump, we have no idea the next thing that he's going to say, the next thing he's going to do. Often he says one thing and then does the exact opposite. Um, it's kind of you know, that's why it's quite difficult sometimes to, to gauge what he's going to do and why he does it. Any chatter or how much on uh, world recession, uh, trade deals, this sort of thing? A lot of chatter of late, especially in the last week, that Donald Trump downplaying the chance of one. Uh, discussions on that? There's been a lot of talk about uh, trade deals and about free trade. Um, the leaders agreed that uh, the international rules for free trade and for commerce have to be changed to better reflect the realities of today's international trading system and also to make it a more fair and equal system, um, specifically referencing China and the way it manipulates its currency and other unfair trading practices that it has. Um, Donald Trump also mentioned that he believes that an agreement, a free trade agreement with China is possible and is quite possibly very near to being agreed upon. Justin Trudeau in his bilateral meetings with UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan focused a lot on free trade. Um, also, during Justin Trudeau's meeting with Donald Trump, they talked about the progress made with the uh, renegotiated NAFTA, the free trade agreement between Mexico, Canada, and the United States. So free trade definitely was a big issue here um, in Biarritz, and um, there's been some significant progress on it. Uh, just to give you an example, Justin Trudeau and Boris Johnson have agreed to pursue high-level talks about a possible free trade agreement between Canada and the UK once the UK will have withdrawn from the European Union on October 31st.
Uh, many have said that Donald Trump is a bull in a, in a china shop, no pun intended. But also, um, are people crediting, crediting him for finally holding China to the mat on this stuff? That's a good question. And I think he does receive some credit from other leaders about that. That being said, his methods are not always fully appreciated. And especially that unpredictability that I was talking about before, that really is a destabilizing factor when it comes to international relations. When you have countries like France, the UK, or Germany, who are strong allies and partners of the United States and don't really know what the United States is going to do, what Donald Trump is going to do from one day to the next when it comes to China, when the global economy is so dependent and relying on uh, China, it does make it a very difficult and unpredictable situation to deal with. And that's precisely why the G7 is so important, because it allows these leaders of um, you know, countries that represent 40% of the world GDP to meet every year and talk face-to-face for two days in a relatively informal manner. So that allows leaders to gain a little bit more clarity about you know, each other's atten- intentions and, and interests. And that certainly was the case here in Biarritz. Um, Donald Trump was able to talk to the other leaders to kind of tell them where the United States was at during with its negotiations with China. But again, you never really know where you stand with Donald Trump. Uh, you bring up an interesting point, though, uh, and that is that at least these people are talking. I, you know, I've talked to many experts that said, you know, we, we always ask you people, well, what came out of this? What's the good? And I guess the good is they're still talking and that that's that's positive. Um, uh, any chatter in regard with Trump and uh, Trudeau in regard to uh, Canadian detainees in China? Obviously, Mike Pompeo, when he was here just prior mm-hmm. to the G7, they were discussing that. Did that come up at all well in France? Justin Trudeau's team did say that it come up. Um, this is not corroborated by Donald Trump um, nor his team. Um, Donald Trump, as we have seen, does not seem to be too concerned with the two Canadians detained in China. Obviously, this is a big priority for Justin Trudeau's uh, government, but we haven't seen any significant progress made on that issue here at the G7. Uh, Donald was, again, prior to, you know, in his uh, propaganda before the big show, uh, talked about Russia, la la la, any chat of that, of of Russia or entering in uh, the G7, that sort of thing. There is a lot of attention paid to Russia, uh, primarily because Donald Trump has emphasized many times here at the summit that he thinks Russia should join the G7 again. Um, Just to refresh our memories, uh, Russia was kicked out of the G8 at the time in 2014 because of its invasion of Crimea. And what's important to remember is that the G7 is a club of like-minded countries that respect uh, democratic values. And, you know, you can't say that today Russia is a country that holds democratic values, not under the current uh, uh, government. And so G7 leaders have not reacted warmly to Donald Trump's proposal to re-include Russia. They just say Russia has no legitimacy to be part of the G7, to be part of a like-minded group of democratic countries. Um, Donald Trump will be hosting the G7 next year as the presidency rotates, so he will have the option to invite Russia as a guest. He said today during his uh, his press conference that he might invite Russia, that he might invite Putin to attend the G7 next year, uh, but he said that he thinks that Putin would not accept his invitation because Putin wants to be part of the group officially. He doesn't want to be invited as a guest, but uh, the other G7 leaders are have, are very firmly opposed to uh, having Russia join the G7 again. Uh, is it correct for us to assume this is going to be quite a circus next year, especially with it being an election year in the United States? What's Donald Trump going to be like as the host of a G7? That's a great question. And, you know, when hosting a G7, it takes months and months of preparations, of logistics, very detailed preparation. That's not something that Donald Trump excels at. And as you said, it'll be election year. He'll be playing to his base. He'll be, uh, he'll want to show that he is 
uh, really uh, promoting America first, that he's standing up for America's interests. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. He also announced today that uh, the summit will be held in Miami and will actually be held at, at one of his properties. Um, so when asked whether or not that was a conflict of interest, whether it was ethical that a G7 would be held at one of his properties and, you know, he would make a profit, he kind of skirted the question and said that as president, he's lost 3 to $5 billion. This is not a figure that has been verified nor corroborated anywhere. Um, so we can really expect this the uh, next year's G7 to be very interesting, to say the least. So because he's lost apparently 3 to $4 billion, that means it's okay to host it at a Trump property, I guess. I could just see all these people, these G7 leaders, riding around in golf carts. Uh, you know, for, forget about the meetings. We're on the links. Let's go. Um, could this make or break him next year? I mean, this will be pretty important, no, because it is in an election year. I mean, a misstep here could cost him. It will be important. But, you know, we've seen Donald Trump make a lot of missteps on the international stage. Good point. But it doesn't seem to have cost him too much support back home. Um, I think he really excels at playing to his base. He really excels at, you know, kind of showing that he puts America first, whether that's true or not, whether his policies actually benefit the United States or his base. I mean, that's a that's certainly an important question that deserves to be asked. Um, but I think he's a really good at spinning the narrative and not controlling the narrative. So I really think that he will be able to make this G7 um, uh, an important step along the way to uh, for his election, uh, re-election efforts. Helene, I can't let you go without talking about the Amazon. What did the leaders talk about in regard to uh, the massive fires that we're seeing? The Amazon was a big topic of discussion and two concrete outcomes came out of the leaders' discussions. The first one is that the leaders, the uh, G7 countries, will each be um, providing either financial or technical support to uh, the to Brazil and to the other countries um, in the Amazon region. So Justin Trudeau pledged 15 million Canadian dollars to fight the fires. He also pledged Canadian expertise, firefighters, equipment, etc. The second initiative is a coalition to deal with the Amazon, to promote um, sustainable development, to promote reforestation, and to promote a sustainable um, agriculture. And this coalition will um, be officially launched at the United Nations General Assembly in September, and it will be in association with um, G7 countries as well as countries in the Amazon region, um, as well as local indigenous uh, populations, and we'll really focus more on long-term efforts to protect and restore the Amazon rainforest. What is Brazil's reaction? I mean, uh, earlier on in the week, it was sort of mind your own business. Uh, Obviously, this self-inflicted. What's Brazil's reaction to this? So Brazil hasn't reacted to these announcements yet, but when Emmanuel Macron was making these announcements, he was very careful to say that he fully respects Brazil's sovereignty and other countries' sovereignty. But what's interesting, though, is that he was asked a question about uh, Brazilian President Bolsonaro's um, sort of personal insults that were targeting Macron. And Macron usually is very diplomatic, even when uh, last year when Donald Trump was, you know, being very aggressive towards him, he's always been very diplomatic. This was the first time that he actually employed quite undiplomatic language. And he said that Bolsonaro's personal insults towards him and towards his wife makes him believe that Brazilians and Brazilian women in particular are very humiliated that that this is their president. And he said that he believes that the Brazilian people um, are looking forward to having a president that will know how to behave accordingly as a president in the very near future. So these are quite undiplomatic um, terms for for Emmanuel Macron and uh, really show that Emmanuel Macron has not taken Bolsonaro's insults or jabs towards him lightly. Wow, unbelievable. So are they accepting the world's help? Will Brazil accept the world's help here? I mean, it would be, and it would not be in its interest to not accept 
uh, their help. And I think it would make Brazil look quite bad on, on the world stage, especially if other countries, for example, Chile has already signed on to this initiative. So I think that we, we don't know yet, but um, I do believe that it would be a mistake for Brazil not to uh, join this coalition. Helene Emerine has been with us, Director, G7 Research Group, France Office, University of Toronto. Helene, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Today, Ontario's local planning and appeal tribunal will begin to hear a number of appeals to to stall implementation and enforcement of short-term rental rules. Uh, let's bring in Thorben uh, Wieditz uh, at Fair BNB. There's lots of chatter that uh, the whole B- uh, Airbnb industry is drastically changing uh, the marketplace and, and how people uh, rent and ultimately h- how they buy, affects how they buy. Uh, Thorben is with us now. Thorben, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having us on the show. What is Fair BNB? Uh, Fair BNB is a coalition of groups, organizations, and individuals that uh, would like to see Airbnb and other short-term rental companies regulated. Um, and those groups include um, anything really from um, condo boards to um, individual condo owners, tenant associations, um, hotel workers, um, and some uh, hotel industry partners that, you know, basically all of those organizations and individuals that, that would like to see um, fair rules be established. Uh, are you against Airbnb? No, we are a pro-home sharing coalition. Like, we have no problem with you and I sharing our own principal residence when we are away on vacation or away on the weekend. But uh, where we draw a line in the sand is um, with uh, people buying up, leasing up, or otherwise acquiring dozens and dozens and dozens of properties for the sole purpose of turning them into um, ghost hotels. And that's the problem that we have seen in, in all kinds of cities, but particularly in Toronto, where you... You live in a residential neighborhood or in a condo building, and before you know it, you have a, a full-time um, hotel next door. And, you know, it interrupts your sleep. It interrupts your own personal enjoyment of your own property. Is uh, this all the Airbnb company? Are there other uh, companies that that are sim- that, mm-hmm. that you uh, feel the same way about, or is it all just sort of under the Airbnb umbrella? Well, we, we talk a lot about Airbnb because it's the, the market leader. It's well, the big like, one, yeah. You know, 85% of all the listings are on Airbnb. So there are Expedia.com and HomeAway, um, Flipkey, their whole range of different um, companies that allow people to place properties on the Internet. Um, but Airbnb is the big one and Airbnb is the market leader. So that's why, you know, we, we call for fair rules for short-term rentals and often refer to Airbnb as sort of a placeholder for the entire industry. Uh, do, do places as large as Airbnb, which don't really vet it, you just, you just book the property per se, is more vetting needed or is that not the issue? The issue is there's got to be regulations before these even start. Well, I think, uh, you know, there are two issues. One is that um, in Toronto, there are about 8,700 entire homes that have been permanently turned into hotel suites. Um, and those operate under the radar and in, you know, in the midst of our residential communities and creating a lot of problems for people. Um, and it also impacts the housing market um, because we all know that the vacancy rate is very low. People have a very hard time finding decent and affordable places to live. Um, so returning these onto the housing market would make a big dent um, and uh, would contribute to easing the problems. Um, the second problem is what you refer to, you know, the accountability and the problem of health, safety, nuisance issues that spread with um, the absentee landlord-driven commercial side of, you know, um, the Airbnb phenomena. And, um, you know, once, we in, once, once the rules are in place that limit our ability to rent out our own properties to our own principal residences, uh, we will lose a lot of the problems and get rid of a lot of problems associated with nuisance, associated with health and safety concerns. Because, you know, let's face it, if you and I rent out our own property, we have neighbors that we have a relationship with, and we're going to make sure that this relationship will be intact. Hmm. Um, if we have like 60 units on the market, um, you know, we do not have relationships with people in the buildings and neighborhoods that we rent them in. And um, that's, that's really the problem. Uh, lots of chatter, and you, you've touched on this, how it affects not only the hotel industry, but also the housing industry. Elaborate a little bit more on that. We'll start with hotel, because that seems obvious. How would it affect the whole uh, the hotel business? Well, um, if you look at Toronto, there are a number of downtown condominium buildings, um, large condos. Um, I'm thinking about the ICE condos, or 300 Front Street West. 
um, some of those condos have 300 plus Airbnb units in them. And those, those, those condos were um, planned, designed, built as residential buildings and not as hotels. So you can imagine uh, what impact that has um, on um, hotel workers that, you know, uh, work in a unionized hotel just across the street. So um, hotel workers are impacted on the housing market and the labor market at the same time because, you know, hours will be reduced. Um, they may lose jobs um, and they have a harder time finding appropriate, decent and affordable housing in the city of Toronto. So, you know, that basically covers the housing and labor market aspect of, you know, some of the regulations that we're looking at. So uh, Airbnb sucks that much out of the housing market. If this was regulated, yeah. Im- immediately we would see more more real estate options in, in the well, city. Well, what happened is in 2014, there were 80 Airbnb listings in Toronto, 80. Um, now there are over 20,000. Um, in 2016, um, the city of Toronto estimated that about 3,200 um, entire homes, those couldn't be apartments, condos, or houses, were used exclusively as tourist accommodations. This number, the latest studies have shown, is up to 8,700. So, you know, at a vacancy rate at 1.1%, placing those 8,700 back onto the housing market, either as, you know, available units for purchase or as rental units to long-term tenants, would significantly ease the city's housing crunch. So what sort of guidelines are you looking for? How do you balance this? It's very simple. It's, uh, uh, you know, the main... Um, cornerstone of the regulation is the so-called principal residence requirement, which means that, you know, if, if you and I want to um, place our own house on uh, Airbnb, we need to show to the city that this is in, in, indeed our principal residence. Um, and then we get a permit number. And with that permit number, we can go to the platform and say, hey, we are a licensed registered host in Toronto. We would like to put our pl- our property on the platform and the company would post it. Um, so, in that sense, we are really about home sharing, and that's what Airbnb started out at as a home sharing company, allowing people to make, you know, ends meet, ordinary people to occasionally rent out right. their own home when it's underutilized. Um, but now it has emerged into a, a very much a commercial um, business for operators, so-called multi-listing operators and high-volume hosts that have dozens and dozens, you know, 60, 200 properties on um, the platform at any given point in time, and those are the ones that create the housing markets and community safety nuisance and health issues and risks. Thorben, did anybody see this coming? Um, I believe so. I mean, you know, it, it, it started out a couple of years ago that um, in North America, uh, a bunch of labor unions, actually, like hotel workers unions, saw this coming, um, you know, probably before the industry itself and before people that uh, are concerned about, you know, sound public policy and public planning. Um, but in many ways, um, you know, the, the response is still sort of lacking. And now people feel overwhelmed. And, you know, the, the Uber experience and other experiences with yeah. city governments that are dealing with these um, platform economy companies that do not pay taxes in the jurisdictions where they operate, that change the, the you know, the transportation sector, the housing sector, the labor markets. So I think uh, people are a little bit on their back foot. But, you know, I'm, I'm very confident that the city's Rules and regulations are very sound and very proactive and not at all cumbersome to um, actually implement and ensure that people get to share their own home, but, um, you know, leave the rest up to the accommodated, to the uh, regulated accommodation industry. Uh, obviously, uh, the cornerstone of what you're talking about is your own principal residence. You can share that right. as, as much as you want, but as far as going out and buying 20 condos and, and creating your own business, that's a different story. What about cottages or vacation properties? Where do you draw the line? Could you see this going with maybe one? Or I guess even once you get yeah. to two, that's a rental situation, right? We don't really, you know, we have never taken a position and we have never really um, 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 paid a lot of focus on the, the rural areas and, and cottage country because um, you know, let's let's face it, there are no um, housing problems that we see in large urban mm-hmm. centers. We know we have housing problems in Toronto. We know right. we have housing issues in Vancouver. Um, but, you know, like once you move into cottage country, you you know, you're not removing housing stock per se right. um, from the market. So I think it's less of an issue there. And um, But even really with a vacation our- property or vacation condo, you're still, I guess, dealing with the same sort of hotel issues. Maybe, No. Um, possibly, but, you know, again, like we have never really come across any major issues in cottage country, so to speak, you know, um, what is, uh, how is Airbnb, the company reacting to this? Um, well, Airbnb is always 
saying on public record that they want to be regulated, they want to play by the rules, they want to cooperate. But when it actually comes down to um, actually playing by the rules, it's a completely different story. Um, so, you know, I think there are two sides of it. Like they have an official um, PR um, site where they um, present themselves as a good corporate citizen. At the same time, we know that, you know, when rules can, uh, are being um, implemented in places like San Francisco, for example, they do not play by the rules. They rather sue um, uh, than, than losing um, their business. Because what's happening with Airbnb in places like Toronto, San Francisco, New York, is that there's a very small percentage of the host community that um, is in charge of the vast majority of the inventory. So Airbnb doesn't make their money with like the ordinary residents, um, you know, occasionally renting out their places. Airbnb makes its money with like 16% of the host community um, being in charge of 85% of their revenue. Right. And, um, you know, mm. the regulation that we are facing here in Toronto would actually address this. And so, you know, I think it remains to be seen whether Airbnb plays by the rules. What we hear is that, for example, the, the city of Oakville, um, just west of Toronto, has very strict rules in place. And um, I don't think that Airbnb is actually playing along. And uh, it would be worthwhile keep talking to um, the city uh, staff in uh, Oakville to see how responsive Airbnb has been, um, um, you know, dealing with complaints and the issue in Oakville. Who should regulate this? Is this up to the municipalities? Is it up to the province? Is it something the country should be in on? How, how do you determine yeah, who, whose job question. this is to regulate? Good question. I think there are different levels to it. Um, you know, like a lot of these big tech companies, you know, if you look at Google, if you look at Facebook, if you look at Airbnb or Uber, they are um, making a lot of money in our cities, but they do not pay taxes in Canada, for example. They're set up in ways, you know, that they, they're set up in headquartered in Ireland, uh, in in uh, Jersey in tax havens. So I think there's a role for the federal government to play in um, taxing these companies so that they are actually um, paying their fair share in the jurisdictions where they make their profit. Um, and then, you know, I think the municipal level is very important because municipalities have jurisdictions over land use. And um, in many cases, um, zoning bylaws can be used to regulate it. And um, municipalities are often a lot stricter than, for example, um, and uh, provincial um, bodies and it's also very site and, and place specific so it doesn't necessarily make sense to have like an overarching provincial uh, legislation um, because the situation is very different in Toronto than it is from East Quillenbury for example right. um, so I think it's it's there's something to be said for municipalities to um, take initiative and um, regulate their own housing markets as you mentioned before, uh, this is the way business is done now. You use the examples of Uber or whatever or any sort of platform type uh, business or economy. Have we reached a, tip a tipping point with this? Will we, see, uh, will we see changes because of the impact it has made on housing? I think so. Um, and I think we also see a lot of pushback um, in local communities. Um, and we see this in Toronto. We see this in Barcelona. We see this in Berlin, in New York City, San Francisco. Um, local communities are pushing back. They uh, um, are having enough of being hollowed out by um, Airbnb that, you know, replaces um, local residents with tourists, uh, specifically in places that are, um, you know, touristically attractive. Um, so I think we'll see a huge pushback on that front. But again, you know, I'm, I'm sort of um, not very optimistic with, with regards to Airbnb actually playing by the rules, even if this pushback translates into legislation and regulation. We know that Airbnb is eyeing an IPO sometime this year. And, um, you know, if, if they actually play by the rules in all the jurisdictions where they operate, um, you know, they have a hard time um, um, selling their product. Has this gotten too big to manage? I mean, you know, you brought up the Uber discussion. It seems every city, you know, at one time or another has, has been having battles with them trying to figure out, uh, again, the, the, the taxi side of all of this. Has it just got to the point where we have to face the fact that this is the way business will now be done? Well, I, I hope not. And um, I don't think so because we are like in the process now of um, getting a handle at, um, you know, what Airbnb is doing to our housing market. And um, I have confidence in in our city governments and provincial tribunals and appeal bodies to actually see the um, you know the the larger public policy view and uh, larger public interest in um, coming up with regulations that are fair, sound, reasonable, and allow us to participate in the sharing economy, but um, also you know address the the worst um, you know 
sort of accesses that that these uh, platforms um, produce. So what is the discussion now? When do you expect to hear or see any result of this? Um, It just started today, and um, it's scheduled for seven days. So it probably ends on September 4th, maybe sooner, depending on how fast we move. But this hearing is all about um, whether or not the City of Toronto should use um, its jurisdictions over zoning bylaws to regulate Airbnb. Um, And uh, it's all about making um, sound planning arguments that correspond to the various levels of government's directions on land use planning. Um, and, you know, we, we, are, we are hopeful that the city prevails. The city has gone through a very prolonged public process um, consulting with everyone. Um, and um, they came up with a set of rules and regulations that seem very reasonable. And the folks here that are appealing, um, you know, have demonstrated, demonstrated a very much like a, a self-interest in the sense that, you know, it's to their own financial benefit if they can appeal and um, slow things down or abolish the rules. Um, I don't I have not seen any good public policy argument that has been put forward. But, um, you know, maybe that changes during the proceedings here. Uh, you talked about Oakville. Uh, Oakville. Are there other larger cities that are doing this right? Does somebody have a model that we can go off of or is, or is this still early stages? Yeah, I think uh, we, there, are, there are some models. Um, San Francisco, for example, has done uh, an excellent job, and um, they um, um, won a, a major lawsuit. And after that, Airbnb had to remove about half of its inventory, its listings, because they were deemed illegal. And I think um, you know Toronto's rules and regulations, um, particularly around the platform accountability side, has been modeled after what has been done in San Francisco. So um, you know, I'm I'm you know, optimistic, um, cautiously optimistic that we end up in a situation where um, Airbnb will have to remove the so-called multi-listing high-volume hosts um, from the platform in Toronto as well. Thorben Whitez has been with us at Fair BNB, uh, and today uh, it all starts the process trying to find some sort of uh, system, some sort of set of rules and regulations that can manage this and make it beneficial for everyone, uh, not just those that are buying mass quantities of properties and renting them out. Thorben, thanks so much for the time and insight. Good luck. Thank you for having us. Bye-bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.